Howdy how, this is Aswi, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, guys? We are here with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Now, today, we are going to talk about my New York Knicks, and I've kicked out all the other hosts. It's going to be just a Knicks pod, and I've brought on two guests instead. So with me today, I got my boy, Drew. What's up? What's up? And we got Rahul. How's it going, guys? So you are two of the most loyal, obsessed Knicks fans that I know. Unfortunately, bad, obsessed, and loyal. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought it'd be fun to have you guys on because for once, guys, the Knicks are actually doing well. I mean, it's funny. Everyone always teases me about the Knicks, but last I checked, we are currently in the seventh seed if the playoffs started today. Play in tournament, baby. Here we come. That's <laughs> what we dreamed of. <laughs> We're relevant. Oh man. The greatest part about this is when we when we face Brooklyn in the first round and sweep them. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> so yeah, actually, if the playoffs started today, it would be a quote unquote subway series, except between you know the Knicks and the Nets. So one thing I want to establish on the record here, because for all our, we have a lot of international listeners who might not understand. You know, quite the scene in New York. New York City is a Knicks town. Now, you know, like, you know, I grew up in Jersey where there are some Nets fans, but even in Jersey, it's mostly Knicks fans, right? So this idea that somehow these Nets are storming the city, I don't buy for a second. What do you guys think? Dude, all I know is when they sweep us, all four of their fans are going to be hyped. <laughs> <laughs> nah, man, there's no way this is a Nets town. It'll never be a Nets town. KD can talk all the smack he wants about how the Knicks weren't cool growing up. But dude, they'll the, the, the Nets will get James Harden in a blockbuster trade and the Knicks will win a game by a game against the Sixers by one or something stupid and they'll be the back the headline on the back page. Knicks beat 100%. Sixers. Yeah, the Nets have a long way to go no matter how, you know, what the team looks like now. They're going to have to have years of success to kind of even put a dent in like the Knicks fan ownership over the city. Uh, one year of success is not going to do it. And, you know, ultimately people that are born here usually wind up being Knicks fans. And we'll see if that changes moving forward. But it's really hard to imagine a town like that. So, And it's a multi-generational thing, too. That's the coolest thing about being a Knicks fan. I mean, people, there's people who are fans way back in the, those 70s teams that, that won, you know, when the Garden was Eden, as they say. And then there were teams, you know, all throughout in the years afterward, in the seasons where you had, uh, you know, Bernard King playing. And then I grew up a 90s Knicks fan. And then people even after that. So it's like multiple decades of misery. And it's, it's almost like this uniting factor, just our shared misery since the early 70s of rooting for this team. Dude, being a fan of this team is not easy. Yeah, it hasn't been easy. And, you know, the Nets, even through the years, you think about the, the teams that they put together with the Jason Kidd run and and whatnot they've had good squads there but you know new york is a Knicks town and and that's just the way it is so so sorry brooklyn (laughs) (laughs) it is what it is so so let's talk a little bit about the current squad right so julius randall has clearly been the guy this season what have you seen from him maybe that you didn't expect or maybe you saw this coming you know drew can probably attest to how much before this season Julius Randle was a thorn on our sides. You know, the Beyblade, no <laughs> handle Randle, you know, whatever you can think of about this guy. But, you know, this year he's really trying to play within themselves. And the two major things that you can see that's different, I don't know if it's a Tibbs-related adjustment or the fact that maybe he has a little more security, is that he's really passing the ball at a clip much higher than his career averages. and He's shooting the three at a higher clip and frequency than he's ever averaged before. These long twos barreling into the paint, into a double team, all the stuff we were seeing last year, you know, as these guys come in for one-year contracts and things like that based on the roster construction, the consistency just wasn't there. And this year, it really has been. And I don't know if that's a Tibbs-related thing, but... Man, I, I really have to do a 180 on Randall, despite his 360s, always. <laughs> <laughs> nah, for real, you got to give the guy credit. I mean, last year we were harassing him on a daily basis, uh, <laughs> you know, losing games because he dribbled it off his foot. He spun around and dribbled it out of bounds. You know, he comes back this year after all that. Um, and obviously we know 
New York's not an easy town. If you're, uh, if you're being a, a terrible player, they're going to let you know. But guy comes back, new coaching system, hitting the three at like an absurd clip compared to his like previous six seasons. I think he's hitting it at a 41% clip this year. I mean, before that, I don't think he, I think his first like seven seasons, six of them were under 30%. He was shooting the three. Uh, I mean, the guy starts off averaging a triple double um, assists. He's he's putting people in the right position. I mean, and it's not like Knicks, the Knicks have a, a bunch of knockdown shooters. So he's obviously just making the right plays. You know, that's off to him. Yeah, you hit it on the head. This guy is creating when there's not a lot of space. And that's something that, you know, we'll talk about as we get into the rest of this roster construction. But, you know, him and RJ as the primary facilitators of the of the team are really having issues running into spacing. And, and some of that is due to roster construction. But even despite that, you know, the the basketball IQ that he's showing this year, like far surpasses than something that he's shown in previous years. So, you know, kudos to Randall. So really happy with the way he's looking. And I think, you know, this Julius Randall can be a foundational piece, you know, maybe not the best team on a winning team, but for sure a contributor on a winner. I mean, this is a guy who was thought of as a black hole. It's just that simple. He was just considered to be a black hole. A guy, if you pass him the ball, he was going to jack up a shot. For him to go from that to a guy who now averages five and a half assists per game, and as you guys alluded to, is creating on a squad that just doesn't have much in the way of shooting, much in the way of you know secondary creation. It's, it's been kind of remarkable. And I do wonder now that we've seen this version of Julius Randle is the front office regretting a little bit going for Obi Toppin, which is already a bit of a reach where they took him. But now they have this guy in the power forward position who looks like he's set to be a power forward of the future. What does that do for Obi? So Obi, you know, honestly, like going through the draft, I mean, where the position we were drafting at was obviously not ideal. This is another another thing we'll probably get into. But, you know, the Knicks have been between a losing and getting a top pick and competing and getting into the playoffs for multiple years. And yeah, we've lucked into a couple of top four selections, KP, RJ, but overall our goal as a franchise has never been very consistent. That being said, you know, landing the pick like Obi Toppin, it kind of showed you the shift in the, in the organizational goals, right? They hired Tibbs. They hired a guy that has been at Dayton for years. He's a polished product. He's coming in as one of the older rookies of this class. And they thought that this guy would be able to come in and provide not only some spacing, he can shoot. You know, you look at some of the highlights from Dayton, this guy was a catch and shooter. He was coming off picks. He was popping threes. With that mixed with his rim running, we really thought we were getting competitor. And, you know, it's funny how things work like that. It wound up motivating Randall to kind of kind of pick up that spacing right. aspect of his game and really, really show that he is still someone that should not be thought of as an afterthought. So I don't know if the OB Toppin pick really like set a fire for Julius Randle this year, but really, like you said, this is becoming like an area where it's going to be difficult to see OB getting the minutes that he needs to develop too, because at this point, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of got our four, you know, as surprising as it is to say. Yeah. I mean, Raul could probably tell you that I'm usually overconfident in our picks and he's usually the one that hates them. (laughs) <laughs> uh, on a on a year-to-year basis uh you know during the draft we'll we'll have a text thread going where he he'll just start with the you know expletive 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 what the hell are they doing <laughs> yeah. but drew yeah. even this year rahul if i a group chat i recall him going on a bit of a rant about uh ob when that was that pick was made so <laughs> i guess it was true to form change it aside like how are you gonna pick a big man when our number one goal Number one problem is spacing, creation, and point guard. I'm so happy about quickly, and we'll talk about that in a second, I'm sure. But, like, you're passing up guys like Tyrese Halliburton. You know, I'm not going to go into this again. We did this during the draft. I, no, I was so depressed when we passed on on Halliburton. I mean, he was there for the taking. It would have been absolutely perfect for this squad. But we did draft one point guard who, in my opinion, needs a lot more minutes, and that's Emmanuel Quickly. Now... Guys, what needs to happen for this guy to start? Because I just don't understand this right now. Because on a team that desperately needs spacing, as we all talked about, it seems obvious to me that quickly he was shooting 36%, and I think could be even better than that, given more opportunities, would be a much better fit than Alfred Payton, who was shooting a miserable 25% from three. The one thing 
that I'm I'm not ready to give up give quickly the starting range just yet. I really want him to start, you know, in the future. The problem with the way the team is constructed, I think, is without him coming off the bench, there's really minimal bench scoring that that I can say, you know, will make a difference. And it's why Randall has to stay on the court for almost 40 minutes a game. I mean, outside of him and quickly, who else is going to who else is going to score for you? I think, you know, we we've seen in the last like couple of weeks that even RJ is not finishing the fourth quarter because he's not producing on the d- defensive end. And then he's also right. inconsistent driving to the basket with his uh, finishes around the rim. So if though if he's your only other option uh, coming off the bench, I mean, you got D Rose now and he looks rejuvenated, which, uh, you know, I like to see in this first two games of the Knicks, he was, you know, going up and under making all these plays. He fell off a little bit. I still think he's, right. he's got some, some legs under him. So, I mean, for now, you know, I definitely want, I, I mean, I want quickly in the starting lineup, but I, I could see why Tibbs keeps him coming off the bench, you know, as a, in that yeah. like seventh man role. Yeah, the, the roster construction, I think, was the big issue. You know, hopefully with Rose now as a facilitator, as a creator, as a scorer, you know, if he was the guy coming off the bench, you can maybe make an argument to make quickly coming into the starting lineup to provide some spacing for Randall and RJ and have a much more well-rounded rotation that way. The problem is that, like Drew said, you know, quickly is needed for creation when Randall's not in the game, when RJ's not in the game. This guy was sold to us as a high-energy three-point shooter. Has turned out to be way more than that. You know, he's, yeah, right. he's still got high energy. He's up in people's faces. He's trying to play defense. He's shooting the ball at a high clip. But his floater game is is beautiful, man. Like this guy, left hand, right hand, high arcing, you know, quick flip shots. He's got a lot of creativity in the paint for a guy his size. And and I, I am genuinely impressed, you know, that we we were able to pick him when we did. You know, we were pretty set on Tyrese Maxey at one point. I know that once he came off the clock, I thought we were scrambling a little bit. We took the second guard on the team. But listen, quickly has been just as bit as effective, and, and he's honestly been a good pick. The kid works like relentlessly on defense. He's in. You see them, them showing him during the, pre, the post games on the court, I taking shots, like all the time. Like he's just in the gym. Like, you know, yeah. you gotta, like, so you got to know he's going to start eventually. I think he probably would be if we did have a different roster construction. But yeah, the way, the way just the way it is today, I think it benefits us with him coming off the bench. Raul, you mentioned his floater game, and honestly, it reminds a little bit of a young Mike Conley because he has that left and right hand floater. You don't see that from guards very often. If they have a floater at all, they're usually there. It's a strong handed shot. You don't see guys with a weak handed floater, which he's already kind of perfected, which is amazing. So he's, I think you're absolutely right. He's not just a shooter like he was built. He's definitely a lot more than that. What about our other guy? Our other young guy on the squad, I should say, which is R.J. Barrett. Now, this is a guy who was picked third and was considered one of these three can't-miss prospects. And the other two, we all know their names, right? Yeah. R.J. Barrett, though, you know, started off a bit disappointing for, for well, at least in, in the eyes of some. I personally thought that he was drafted into a terrible situation. You have a guy with absolutely no spacing around him his first year. Even now, there's just such limited spacing on the Knicks roster that teams are just packing the paint against him. Teams are you know, daring him to beat him with his jumper, which is easily the weakest part of his game. And, you, you know, Drew mentioned his slashing before and, and, and inability to finish around the rim. Part of that is because teams are sink, able to sink against him in a way they aren't able to do against other elite wings. And I think all that said, I, I do see flashes of, of potential from him. He has this a little bit of playmaking in him. He is a good passer, all things considered. So I, I still believe in him, but, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not like it's so an obvious case right now for R.J. Barrett. So, so I'm going to jump in this one real quick, Drew, if you don't mind. So when he tells us about how every draft I'm killing who we're picking and every draft, you know, he's trying to get excited about the positives between the, the rookies <laughs> that we're drafting. So let me start with the good. I'm going to flip the script a little bit. I think RJ is, and this is maybe blasphemous to say, but he's an anti-mellow. You know, he's, he's always giving effort. He's rebounding the ball. He's trying on defense. He's communicating on defense. He's a good passer. He creates off the dribble. He kicks out to the wings, shooting the ball. Right. Corner threes are open. All of these things really make me think that, hey, even if this offense does not improve, does not get to an elite level, he has a role on a winning team. It just might not be what we were thinking initially. And now that brings me to the negatives. You know, 
he has stretches, like you said, where he can take over a game, finish, driving, step back, 12-footer, 15-footer, 16-footer, something like that. But really, unless he adds some significant range to his game, he's always going to be limited offensively. He's always going to be someone that is an inefficient scorer. For a guy that drives the ball the way he does, he has to get to the line more and finish at the line more to make up some of the efficiency that he does not get from shooting the three ball. Totally Since agree. he's not a good free throw shooter, not to mention a three-point shooter, his overall effect is always going to be limited. His efficiency is always going to be limited. He's going to be a volume scorer at best. And can he put up some points? Can he put up some stats? Can we be a middling team with him as a primary or secondary option? Yeah, I think so down the line. But I don't think he's going to be able to carry us to being anything meaningful until he can improve the efficiency of his offensive game, whether that's adding the three, like stepping out like Randall has this year, or getting to the line more like Luka does and creating points from the free throw line. So those are the two things I can see that he can do to really start improving his game. Otherwise, you think about him at the end of the game, if he's your go-to option, is he going to score on Kawhi and a double team when people are actually trying to play defense? As one thing in the regular season, the playoffs are a different beast. LeBron, AD, Kawhi, all these people, you have to be able to hit a jump shot, and and that's kind of where I'm at with, with RJ still. Well, question for question for you guys. He he does, you know, drive a lot a significant amount of the time. But why is he not getting to the line? Is he not is he not capable of drawing the fouls correctly or is he not getting just not getting calls? So I, my theory for that, Drew, is I think I don't think he's like a A plus level athlete that just simply blows by a guy and gets over the defense. Those kind of guys tend to go to the line a little bit more. But I also think He's often playing against a defense that's set against him and camp out in the late. If you just watch Knicks games and watch just about any other team, you know, we're the 23rd ranked offense, and it's a miracle we're that high. When you look at the lack of spacing we have, when teams guard the Knicks, they're just, you know, they abuse the defensive three in the key rule. And there's always seems to be the one or two guys just standing in the paint. So a guy like RJ, who I do think is a good slasher, just not a kind of guy who can slash with multiple guys in there in the paint. And I also agree with Rahul that I think his ceiling as a player will be determined largely in part with how efficient he's able to be with his outside shot. Because if he's not that, then he's neither, because then you can't trust him with the ball and you can't even use him off the ball. So I think you know, right now he's, he could be a facilitator, but when it comes to the playoffs, when teams can scheme against him and really you know, figure out which way he likes to go, all the little things in his game, he's going to need something more than what he has right now. I, you know, I, that's exactly what, what, I, what I think. You know, if you... Okay, and I, I'm going back to this Luka thing one more time, and it's not a comp, comp or anything like that, but Luka Doncic has range, yes. He can hit threes, yes. Is he a high percent three-point shooter? No. But why is he still so efficient? Not only is his passing elite, which I think RJ has the ability to be elite if we had more spacing. I agree with that. he gets to the line. This dude puts up 20 points on 12 shot attempts, not because he shoots 60% of the on, from the field but he gets to the line 10 times and you have to be able to do that as a primary option as a guy that can create late you have to be able to put your head down either get to the rack or be able to get to the line whether it's the style of drive or like you said where the paint is just too clogged for him to be able to reasonably do it at an efficient level either way through roster construction through through a change in his mentality we have to see some improvement over the next couple of years before we can really make a decision about RJ as a second contract guy. Right now, it's all gravy. Rookie contract. He's got time. But once we, have, once we come around to the end of next year and the year after, is he going to be some guy that you want to give him money to stay? Is he a second contract Nick? We haven't had a second contract Nick's rookie Jesus since when? I can't even tell you off the top of my head. Yeah, he well. was supposed to be that guy, but we didn't keep him either. So I really hope RJ is that guy, but he's going to have to show us something. Yeah, you guys, so you can't see all of you are listening to us on audio, but all of us shook our head as we talked about never having a, a Knicks rookie make that second contract because it's really true. I mean, it's ridiculous. KP couldn't even last four seasons with the Knicks and get that even. We didn't get to the point where we made the decision on him, right? I mean, we just traded him before that was even up. One, one last thing, uh, you know, I know we talked about our young guys and Randall. I don't want to leave out Mitch, you know, block party, big Meech, 
all the above. He's a nightmare in the paint. You know, I really think I do see a role for him in the modern NBA. I just don't know if he can make the necessary adjustments. Two things, real quick. Got to lay off the fouling, stay around more. He has to know that he makes an impact on shots, whether he's actually blocking them or not. So he shouldn't be jumping at everything. And secondly, let the man try to shoot a little bit. We see all these practice videos. He's putting up shots. <laughs> let, let him do something other than dunk the ball. I mean, he already got his field goal percentage record top in the NBA history. But let yep. the man take a jump shot, Tibbs. Come on. For real. And also, low-key shout-out to the guy uh, filling in for him right now. Noel doing, yeah. doing some work, playing very good help D. Dude for is sure. super skinny. I don't know how he... He he was getting roasted by Carl uh, Anthony Towns yesterday, but he kept working and yeah, putting in work. I mean, and you hear why he came here. He said he wanted to be around when the Knicks turned it around. He thought he'd get some burn and could be part of the the yeah. you know the new the new future of the Knicks. So good good on him. Yeah, Rose, don't cut him. We don't want him to go to the Nets. <laughs> <laughs> no buyouts, yes, please. man. <laughs> no buyouts. No one in the league should buy anyone out. We don't want anyone more Nets. <laughs> they have yeah. enough talent on that team. So if we're talking about this team, we have to talk about the coach. Because the Knicks, as we said here today, are third in the NBA in defensive efficiency. And that's only after the Lakers and the Jazz, two of the elite defenses in the NBA. And this is despite not having that many players with the reputation for being known as good defenders. And also, despite a, a practice schedule, which basically means they're not able to practice given the how compressed the NBA schedule has been this season. I mean, Julius Randle talked about it on a podcast recently that they just don't practice. And yet, they've just somehow got this team to defend and play hard. What are you guys seeing on that end of the court that's leading to this sort of surge in defensive efficiency from a team that none of us expected to be an elite defense. Welcome back, 90s, man. Tim. <laughs> yes. Gritty Knicks are back. Uh, it's nice to watch. You know, defense, yes, solo defenders make a difference. And having high-quality wing defenders and things like that will make your team elite. That being said, the bar for being a high-effort, solid defensive team is not all that high. And Tibbs is a guy that has the people playing the right way. They're playing on a string or at least close to it for a, for a team that hasn't been able to practice a lot. So I do think, you know, they've been coached up. They're definitely giving effort. They're playing hard for their guy. And the rotations are smart and they make sense. You know, Mitch, Mitch is our best defender. And yeah, he makes a big def- difference. He's been hurt for a little bit, but our defense has kept up. And it has to do with... Tibbs, the effort, people buying in. For sure. I think it's just effort, intensity, and actually playing smart for once. Leaving the right person open when you have to rotate and not like leaving Steph Curry wide open for a three and, and running after Andre Iguodala or whoever else has an open shot. You know, it's letting those people who who are less likely to hurt you from three, which is an interesting stat too. It's it's. I saw this the other day. I think the Knicks uh, are one of the top three teams in leaving in wide open uh, three-point shots, but they opponents are converting like the lowest percentage against them. I think it's like 32% or something on wide open threes, which is way below the average of like 40%. So some people are calling, are asking, you know, are they getting lucky? I just think they're playing it smart and leaving the right three-point shooters open when, when they have to, which, uh, you know, the league has become a three-point shooting league. So defending the three is, uh, you know, obviously vital if you're going to be a good defensive team. I, I think just the effort night to night, you can see it. If you look around the NBA, especially this season with no fans and a compressed schedule, I feel like defensive effort around the league has never been weaker. And just the few teams that do defend, so we talked about the Lakers, the Jazz as examples, and obviously the Knicks, they just play so hard possession to possession on that end. And I think just doing that is the reason why the Knicks can be competitive night to night. And I think when you get to the playoffs, it's a different story because at that point, everyone gives effort. But this is going to be the avenue through which the Knicks make a run if they do it all. Yeah, that's something we said about, you know, coming back to a season quickly. A lot of these playoff teams that played in the bubble, they're coming on short turnarounds. You know, they're working themselves into the season and no one's really hiding it. You know, no one's going full throttle 
trying to get through this 72 regular game season. They're trying to save their energy up for a postseason run. Yeah, they want to make the playoffs, but ultimately, I think, you know, with the lack of fans in the stadiums at full capacity, the home field advantage is not the thing that they're really fighting for. You know, I think people want to stay away from the playing tournament, but a lot of teams are coasting through the regular season, like you said. And I think it really does show the teams that are are playing hard. They're they're consistent. They're able to scrap out a few extra wins here and there. And I think the Knicks definitely are playing hard hard for tips. So, you know, it's nice to see some some positive momentum um, and playing the right way from a Knicks franchise that, you know, it's been tough to watch the last few few years. And, and Knicks fans, more than I think many fan bases, really genuinely appreciate teams that play defense, teams that play hard. I mean, we we rooted for teams in the past, like the 90s teams, which we'll talk about in a little more detail later. But those 90s teams, they competed with, frankly, minimal offensive talent. They just had multiple guys from Starks to Oakley to Mason you know, these guys are just, they built their reputation on defense. So, and the Garden has always appreciated that kind of, if you think about New York street ball, even, right? Look at a, a, a court like the cage, which I, and I used to live right near the cage. And it, it's so small. That's what you don't realize. You think about the cage, it's a tinier place. And Anthony Mason actually grew up playing in the cage and it leads to a style of play that's a lot more physical. So for many decades, New York basketball is known as physical basketball, even in the city itself. So I think this city embraces teams like this. It's just a shame that we don't have fans this year. Although, starting tomorrow, uh, we're recording this on a Monday, starting on Tuesday, fans hype. are finally going to be hype. allowed hype. 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 to come back to the games. 2000. <laughs> Yo, your man's going on Thursday. First available ticket I can go to, I'm, I gotta go, man. Oh, for real? I am, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. So that's the Kings game. Yep. What is more hype than a close game at the Garden? We're watching it on TV. We're on defense, and you can just hear the crowd chanting defense. Dude, you can see the screen shake because the camera can't stay still, man. It's so true. It's just like there's no other feeling of just watching that like happen and like getting the stop and like moving down. And also shout out to Tibbs. You know, I, I could say I'm pretty sure me and Rahul, and I don't know about you, AC, maybe you're the same. We were talking about, you know, they were cleaning house. They got rid of all these guys, and then they go out and hire someone from our past and I'm like, no, they didn't just do the they didn't just clean clean house <laughs> the president just to bring back another person from our past. What are they doing? And you know, credit right. to this guy, you know, he he obviously is bringing that defensive toughness, but he's also seemingly adapted on the offensive end. I mean, you see shots that these guys are taking like quickly, step back threes, and I could definitely see him back in the day like running up the sideline yelling, you can't even understand what he's saying because he can't he yeah. can't like, breathe and talk at the same time. Well, maybe he's still doing that, but we can't see it under the mask right now. You know what I'm saying? He seems way more relaxed, and you can tell <laughs> like the team is enjoying playing for him, but they're also enjoying playing with you know each other. It seems like they have their back. But yeah, shout out to the Tibbs for you know taking the year off and adapting. He's definitely learned from his experience. He's had a couple of tough runs. You know, he had his glory days in Chicago, tough run up in Minneapolis, and you know ultimately. Calling and following basketball, you know it's a different game than it was back in the early 2000s. You know, sure. Steph Curry, this is just a different time. And he under, he has to understand, and I think he is understanding, that, you know, efficient basketball, threes, layups, and free throws. And he's trying to adjust, and I think the Knicks are trying to adjust. You know, the other thing you, you had said, these guys are playing so hard, and it's hard not to root for them. And that's kind of just where I've been all year. You know, like, it pains me. We have a middling Mavs pick. You know, this is a perfect recipe for a poor Mavs showing them missing the playoffs, having an extra lotto pick. Then I expect us to be a top five bottom team. I'm thinking, hey, stack draft, Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, all these people coming out. We have a right. shot at really adding some talent. And then you bring in Tibbs, right culture, play the right way. But now we have some horses to run with. It's not looking like it's going to go that way. And now it's early in the season. Maybe things reverse. Maybe we get some lotto luck like we haven't got. But you know what? As much as I hate to say that, you know, maybe winning is the right call at this point, even without the the foundational pieces that other teams might have, instilling the right culture and playing the right way, it really makes it hard to root against. I can't sit here and, and pray for the Knicks to lose if they're playing the way they are. You know, these guys are scrapping, they're playing hard. Randall's playing well, Quickly's playing well, all these guys. So, you know, conflicted, but but I'm proud of the Knicks this year. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a big question for for the Knicks as a franchise, right? Would you rather us tank or just be a lower seeded playoff team? I mean, yeah. I think for years we've done the tank business, trying to get <laughs> the top the top pick. Like every year, we'll end up being one of the one of the worst five teams, and we've never like not even come the closest we got is what third, and we picked Barrett when there was two. <laughs> we had the worst worst record in the draft that year we just fell back two spots and missed the two generational guys <laughs> yeah and you know i mean times have changed also with the way they do the lottery you know it's it's no longer the the worst team has the best chance now it's more spread out i just don't think it makes, makes sense to do do the tank and tank job anymore especially with us not being able to attract free agents anytime soon i mean i think it's about the culture and people starting to see this is a fun place to play again and you know then people will want to come free agents, top level, top tier players. And of course, you know, you can draft players in the teams. Yeah. I mean, for me, I would much rather at this point be in the playoff on, even if that means by the way, that we don't get past the play in game. Like even if we get knocked out in that first game, I still don't care. I still think that it's worthwhile for a couple of reasons. I mean, Drew alluded to the lottery odds changing and the worst team still does have the best odds, but those odds are flattened out now, right? And we've seen the last couple of years where teams with somewhat uh, better records still jumped up in to, get, to get high lottery picks. Another thing is the play-in game to me is a total game changer because it used to be that if you could fight to make the eight seed, you were kind of taking a chance because, you know, you might fall short and now you have the worst odds in the lottery or you might even just make it and now you just get, get swept by the number one seed. Now... Even the chance to play in a play-in game is kind of fun, right? I mean, I think, can you imagine how hype the Garden's going to be to have a play-in game? Even if, you know, whether if they get a host one, if they're like a 7th or 8th seed, it's going to be freaking amazing. Yeah, I, I, there is something to say about, you know, we, we've been talking about the Nets on and off all, all podcasts. But you got you to gotta admit, them putting together a product that started competing, started getting to the playoffs, definitely showed that free agents and trade candidates that they were ready to, you know, take that next step make an investment on a star player, maybe take that next step to become a contender. So, you know, there is the building your team from the lottery way and the advantages and disadvantages of which we've kind of laid out. But there is also a way to build the team by starting to build a good culture and winning a couple games, putting together a couple pieces and then going out and finding your your star, whether that is the next guy that's going to be disgruntled you know, Beal, Booker, whoever, you know, you don't know who's going to come up. You don't know when they're going to come up. You don't know how fast they're going to be traded. Like this Harden thing happened so quick. You just got to be right. ready. You got to have the right right team set up to do it. So so I've come around on this um, on this building, building someone competitive, getting into the play-in tournament. I think that's not, that's not the end of the world, you know, as, as it might have been if, if we were a lottery team like before. And, and to your point, Rahul, you remember the Clippers had a similar oh, plan, yeah. right? I mean, they, they they built a team that was competitive, that they were a lower-seeded playoff team, and then they were able to get Kawhi and Paul George out of nowhere. And no one expected that happening, right? So it has sort of changed the dynamics of which teams attract free agents. I think if we can just be a competitive team, I think that our biggest challenge is showing that our organization is competent. We have not been competent for 20 years, right? So just doing that alone, we're still the mecca it's still new york city we can just be competent i think we'll we'll attract some free agents yeah and and to speak on that competence you know it's going to be a matter of time before we kind of figure out where these guys are going but one reason why we're not in the same treadmill pseudo competing pseudo lottery situation as we were before it's because they've preserved their draft capital and they have preserved their roster flexibility these guys have done a tremendous do- job at giving short-term contracts all expiring at the same time with maybe small roster bonuses here and there, a la Julius Randle, if we choose to let him walk. That's an X amount, a million a year next year. But what I'm trying to say is we are putting together a product that is competing, but we are not locked into this product with an inability to make it better or add a piece. We have our draft capital. We have the Mavs picks. We have cap space pretty much every year we want it. Because we have no one really signed out long-term big big money. So, you know, I will say that there's a lot to be seen with our new management team. But I am encouraged because we've been in, we haven't been in a spot this good in a long time. For sure. And like you said, we have, we have some time to figure this out. You know, Randall's on, in, on contract for another year. 
we have the flexibility. I mean, if he keeps playing this way, you know, he's, I, I think we get his bird rights right after three years. So, you know, we can go out, get free agents, re-sign him as a second piece, have our draft picks. You know, the, the, the draft is coming back with high schoolers being able to play so or, or to be involved. So we're, you know, everything's looking bright for us. It's just, will we make the right moves? which has always been our problem. But, you know, we started off, we got the base of it, right? We got our picks, we got our flexibility. Let's see what we, what we do with it. So it's safe to say you guys are optimistic on the Leon Rose World Wide West administration, so to speak? NBA Kentucky, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Pipeline. Get us some stars, Calipari. No, I'm not as uh, versed in how, how important, you know, World Wide West is. I think that's... Uh, one of you guys can fill me in on how, how important he's been over the last couple of years. I do hear his name thrown a lot, around a lot uh, during the offseason. So World Wide West, he's like the shadow player of the NBA. Everyone around the league basically calls him Uncle West. He's the guy who he knows all the emerging players when they're in high school or even back at the time when they're in middle school. And by the time they get to the league, they often join the CAA historically because of World Wide West. And Leon Rose was a lead basketball agent for the CAA, which is the most powerful agency in the NBA. And, you know, we have had a pretty good track record of teams run by former agents recently. Bob Myers did it with the Warriors. Rob Polinka did it with the Lakers. So I think that combination of these guys, their connections and their knowledge of how to interact with players, which are, you know, that's a huge skill in of itself, it is a bit promising. Yeah, you know, it, having at least someone with a vision to plan, someone with enough respect in the league to maybe let Dolan kind of do his own thing, maybe play with his band and not really in the mix. (laughs) I think, you know, that can only be a good thing. You know, having NBA people that know NBA people that will instill a good culture, hopefully bring winning players to, to New York. One can hope. And so far so good as far as I'm concerned. You know, Raul, you bring up Jim Dolan and we're coming up on now two decades of Jim Dolan being our leader. Jim Dolan being the owner of this team, I definitely don't want to call him a leader in any way, shape, or form. You know, we've only had five playoff appearances in the past 20 years, only one playoff series win. But the thing with Jim Dolan, I think is a little bit misunderstood, is that he's not an involved guy who's telling people what basketball decisions to make. There's no not that much of a track record for that. And he's actually not a cheap owner either. There's plenty of owners out there. You know, Robert Sarver comes to mind. Tillman Fertitta comes to mind. Guys who let talent go away. That's never been... James Dolan's problem. He's never hesitated to pay money, but he does have some big problems. One problem he has is that he, he hires the wrong people, and then he sticks by those people even you know, amongst their many failures. I and mean, Isaiah Thomas was a great example of this. God. Bill Jackson was a great example of this. And then he's surrounded by yes men. He doesn't seem to like to be have any kind of criticism. When any, even when the media criticizes him, he kind of takes it out on them or you know kicks them out of arenas and does all kinds of things like that. Yeah, but when of course, players do it. <laughs> yeah, like Charles Oakley, for instance, right? And then. And then the other thing that's bad about him is that he creates a toxic work environment. There's so many stories about former employees of the Knicks or even current employees of the Knicks speaking anonymously, basically saying that it's miserable to work for the Knicks. But if he had, for, for once, if by a miracle he's hired the right people, he's not going to get involved and tell them what to do. So that is promising, at least. Yeah. And, you know, he has a, another New York franchise that's a proven winner. The New York Rangers have been successful for many years almost anti-Knicks in their in their ability to make the playoffs and have competitive rosters. And he's the same owner for both franchises. So you have to wonder what what he's doing with one team and the other. And I think the answer is what you mentioned. You know, he's never been a cheap owner. He is someone that wants to win almost to a fault. You know, he is not patient with rebuilds. He's not um, happy with directions that aren't going in the right way one or two years into it. Sometimes these things, building teams, making a franchise competitive takes three four years we've just never saw a plan through we've had cap space before and then blown it on joakim noah courtney lee etc we've had right. cap space before or, or rather we've had an amnesty before that we used on a one-year expiration chauncey billups to try, try, try <laughs> oh Chandler. my god instead oh of rolling god. that over the next day would have cp3 so so every single time we've been on the cusp or there's been a major like decision to make, we always choose the short-sighted one. And I think that is his inherent flaw. He just can't get out of his own way. He can't let the plans happen. He doesn't see 
the for he doesn't see the forest for the trees. So, you know, he he's he's not the worst owner by any means, but God, I wish he would hire someone that knew basketball and let him step away. And I'm hoping that these guys are those guys. So, so the jury's out. But you know, I think that has that has a lot to do with Jim Dolan and his lack of patience. <laughs> I mean, you t- AC, you said it. Well, he's not really hands-on, but you talk about a shadow player in the NBA being World Wide West. We've had this shadow player since Joe Dolan came in. <laughs> His name is Steve Mills, who somehow somehow managed to survive like 10 coaches over 15 years, kept the position of significant influence, <laughs> gave out all these ridiculous contracts that we still talk about today. And only this, I think, past year was he fired. So maybe he is doing the right thing for once. He, Like you said, it's another yes. It's one of those yes men in a position of power where it doesn't seem like he has much influence. But, dude, how did this guy survive? I could, I could have done the same job he did for 20 years. And and <laughs> there's no way because you would have to actually make a mistake on every decision. <laughs> You'd have to try to be as bad as Steve Mills. And it's so funny because I think like non-Knicks fans have no idea who the hell Steve Mills is, but he actually is part of all the administrations that were failures and somehow just kept his job the whole time. It's it's a remarkable feat. Yeah, like he, this guy is just failing upwards somehow repeatedly. Yeah, you have to wonder what info this guy had on Nolan. This guy had to have had info, man. <laughs> He's like, I know your band. I know your band sucks for real. My guitar. <laughs> so, what's one exceptionally bad Knicks move over the past whatever years that infuriated you when it happened, and then subsequently proved to be a disaster? Like, what's? I mean, it's almost hard to pick one, but give me one off the top of your heads. I want to put you guys on the spot here, but. Give me one that strikes you as just a move that uh, it's a miserable Knicks move. The two big ones that I mentioned stand out to me. You know, amnestying Chauncey Billups, who was at the time still a productive player, just to sign Tyson Chandler to make this make this large front court lineup when the whole team and the whole league was moving towards spacing and shooting, had to have been a huge error. And this error pre prevented us from obtaining CP3, who would eventually wanted to come join his boy Mello in New York. So that's something right. that we will never know would have happened. And another move is the THJR move. You know, Tim Hardaway Jr. has been a productive NBA player, and I'm not going to take that away from him. He was an entertaining Nick when he was with us. He got signed away to Atlanta. Budenholzer made him even more efficient. The problem was we didn't have a system like Budenholzer had in Atlanta. So when he came back for us, he was the primary secondary option. And then you start to see that this roster construction wasn't that good. So a lot of FOMO, a lot of money being spent without thinking forward the next couple of moves. And I think those two ones stand out to me. How about you, Drew? Wait, wait, before before Drew jumps in here, Rahul, you didn't even mention the most absurd part about the Tim Hardaway Jr. thing. We had the guy. We let him go when that was clearly a bad decision in the first place. And then we overpaid to bring him back. Yeah. I mean, come on. Your boy Steve Mills 101 right there. Well, <laughs> do you remember we were sitting watching free agency go up? I remember we that, were together. that free agency too. We, bro, we were together when we saw the alert for the Tim Hardaway Jr. signing. But before that, we were celebrating that they had not made any disaster moves. We were like, we're doing nothing. Yes. Yes, we're trying <laughs> yeah. to do it. And then all of a sudden the alert comes in and you're like, no. Yo, this can't be real. Yeah, what was it? It was like eighty-one million or something for three, four years. Some absurd number. Four years, eighty. Was a number. Oh man, it was something ridiculous that no one was gonna pay. No one in their right mind would it, like. I think at one point he he even admitted he was surprised he got that contract. Four years, seventy. There you go. Not My eighty. God. We got Julius Randle playing at an All Star for less than that. On a, on a right. <laughs> <laughs> Three years later, <laughs> Drew, what's your uh, what's your terrible move that was made? I mean, this one's tough for me. I mean, there's a lot, but like the terrible, I don't know if I would call it terrible, but I would say ill advised because there was another way to get mellow, and that was se- 
sending our entire team to the Denver Nuggets <laughs> <laughs> and sending the entire like core of our our team. I mean, like we lost how many like core players there? Gallinari, Chandler. I don't. I, I, I can't even like Gallinari, Wilson, Chandler, Timothy Mozgov, which we were really high on. All the first round picks, including what wound up being Jamal Murray, I believe. Yep, Jamal yep. Murray. Turn it to Jamal Murray. And then it's you know it, right? only. Yep. Yeah, it was it Jamal, Murray, Jamal, Murray. Jamal Murray. Only to you know the guy would have definitely came. Like I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that he just and and we we fell for it, right? He wanted the money under the old CBA, and he forced his he forced the hand saying he'll resign with whoever trades for him because he's gonna sign a new deal. Man, he wasn't gonna play for the Nets. <laughs> <laughs> Man, he was coming one Yo, way or but he, but he took three million left on the next deal, dude. Yo, he called our bluff, and then the guy. All right, I love Mello, and then the second part yeah. is love Mello. He's a he's obviously not the same guy. He gets injured in his final year of his contract. I'm pretty sure he hurt his knee, needed surgery. Phil Jackson resigns him to the max. <laughs> like 30 million over five years the guy's 33 years old i was like i can't believe like i mean all our trouble and all our success over the last like literally eight years has to deal with has to deal with mellow like the good times and the bad yeah i mean drew you forgot the funniest part of it which is that we added a no trade clause at an extra year that mellow did not even ask for we just threw it in for free just for no reason at all and then it became a nightmare to actually trade the guy away because he had this no trade clause Dude, I'm telling you, like, our highs and lows for the last eight years all relate back to Mello. I mean, it was the best of times, and then it's also the worst of times. And even, like, what the return we got for him was who? Doug McDermott, Ennis <laughs> Enter, and a second-round pick? These are... I mean, it took me a while. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember <laughs> who we even traded him for. No, nobody relevant, basically, yeah. is the answer. Jesus Christ. Well, my pick for the move that infuriated me when it happened. It's a little bit, this is from the previous decade, guys. So this just shows how long standing our misery has been. Do you guys remember Jerome James? So for those of you who might not remember who Jerome James was, because frankly, you shouldn't because he sucked. Um, Jerome James averaged a beastly five points and four rebounds per game for the Sonics from 2002 to 2005. And then, and then, over an 11-game playoff run, just 11 games, he averaged an amazingly dominant 12 points and 6 rebounds per game. And based upon this, the Knicks said, and they said this in multiple interviews, that they found the next great big man. And they gave this fool five years, 30 million, which might not seem like a lot on today's salary cap, but it was a lot of money back then. It was, you know, kind of a huge contract that you'd pay a pretty good starter and maybe even like a a lower tier all near all-star type player it was a lot of money to give up for a guy like this and subsequently he sucked he was injured he was constantly overweight (laughs) at one point we had him and eddie curry on the team so we had two overweight centers on the same team i mean god the knicks yo this this big snack attack has to stop (laughs) (laughs) big snacks man what a throwback (laughs) And this man, what? Correct me if I'm wrong. Was he on the Knicks with Dan Tony? You, you think he lasted that long? I don't. I don't. Do we have so. this big man try to play seven seconds or less? Is that is that a fact? I don't think so. That's okay. That's even. I don't even remember that. I try to block out the entire part of he went being on our team. To be honest. Oh my god. He was the most unathletic big man I've ever seen. <laughs> I can't believe, and you know how how much of an idiot I am, or how much of a like loser Knicks fan I am. When at the time, whenever they tell me something, whenever they're like, "Yo, this guy, he's like <laughs> gonna be the next big," th- yo, I'm like, "Yo, Rahul, check it out, we got the next one." And Rahul's like, "You fool, this guy's," <laughs> and I'm like, "Nah, man, give him a chance. Just give him a couple games. He'll show. He'll show out, and and it'll there'll be a reason we gave him all this money." Yo, it's never happened. Yo, Loki, never Loki, I was right. He had he had one year with D'Antoni as the coach. My man <laughs> two games, averaged five minutes, and had three points per game, bro. <laughs> oh, my God. 
he probably spent four minutes walking up the court. You know, like this guy was super yep. unathletic. I remember he couldn't couldn't do anything on the court that remotely resembled a basketball move to me. You know, guys, I was thinking a little about the the nineties. Did you guys were you guys fans of the Knicks back in the nineties? Yeah, sure. I think my first couple memories are are, are sad Reggie Miller memories. <laughs> As a it's funny you mention that because I actually wanted to go back through my first, I don't know, eight, nine years as a Knicks fan. And just, you know, now we think of the Knicks as an incompetent team. But in the 90s, the quote-unquote glory days, the glory was pretty painful. We had some painful times in the 90s. So that run of the 90s was basically one heartbreak after another. So my first memory, guys, is in 93. I remember this really well. So my first memory of basketball really was, was us playing against the Bulls. And I remember the game where Charles Smith gets blocked by the entire Bulls team. You know, Smith blocked, Smith blocked, Smith blocked, Smith blocked, blocked. It's again, like Scotty blocked, again, Michael blocked him. Again, yeah, over and over again. You know, Marv Albert is like having a panic attack talking about it. <laughs> Back before his cart washed up Marv Albert, who can't even complete two sentences. You know, this, is, this is cross-dressing era Marv Albert back in the day. Um, oh, my God. So that's my first memory, right? My next year, this is now 94, Reggie Miller scores 25 points in the fourth quarter, makes a choke sign at Spike Lee, and Reggie Miller immediately becomes my most hated player. I fucking hated that guy, man. I hated him. But we beat his ass. We go to the finals. I'm like, yeah, we're never going to see that fool again. You know, don't worry. We beat him. And of course, that's when we, you know, go to the finals. We face the Rockets. Starks has that game where he takes and misses a million threes. To this day, my dad will complain about that game whenever I mention the Knicks. He's like, oh, that's Starks. We could have won the championship if not for him. We could have won threes. And, you know, and Hakeem, you know, he kind of just sunned Patrick Ewing and made it very clear that he was the better player. So that's 94. 95, we have met Reggie Miller again. So this time is when he has this infamous eight points in seven seconds in what has to be the worst choke job in NBA history. I mean, that that was so scarring for me. I I actually, like, I might have cried. I, I don't. I you know I try to I really try to shut that part of my mind now, but it was I remember just being so stunned more than anything of what was happening, and even to this day, whenever I, I watch a game, there's always this thing in the back of my head. Yeah, but they're still in the Reggie Miller zone, you know. Like so, when a team's getting blown out, I'm like, ah, we can still do it, you know. <laughs> so, so that's that's ninety five, ninety six. Jordan's back now. He's you know back at his peak. He demolished the Knicks in five games. I had this sad realization that the Knicks had nobody in this guy's stratosphere. Basically, we're not going to beat this guy as long as he's around. And I actually hated the Bulls in the 90s. I know a lot of people idolized Jordan. I did not idolize Jordan. He ruined my childhood just like Reggie Miller did. So that's 95. I'm sorry, that's 96. Now in 97, we start facing the Miami Heat. And I, I know you guys remember this rivalry. Rough, man. I remember everything you're talking about, AC, but... The, the 97 season and beyond is when watching those playoff series, my heart started pounding for every possession. Like, I'm, I hated the Heat, man. So, yeah, yeah, so guys, explain, explain why we hated that Heat team so much. What was it about that team? Dude, because they played like us. They were exactly. from the South, man. Well, yeah, I mean, it was Pat Riley, right? He, he's the one that taught us how to play that way. Yeah. He yeah, leaves he, in the middle of the night to go to the Heat. He, he taught us how to play. So he built this team, this tough physical team with Patrick Ewing and everything like that, right? And then he leaves us to join this Miami Heat team. He goes all over the sunshine. He just leaves, like you said, in the middle of the night, creates the identical team. He has his own Georgetown Center in Alonzo morning. I mean, come on. Like, he couldn't even be creative with it. We played, picked to start this team with. And they played the exact same way. And I still remember this really well. We are up 3-1 in this series, 97. In game oh, five, Lord. a brawl breaks out between Charlie Ward oh, and PJ Brown. This was not even a basketball-related fight. My dude I Pat Riley told his man, "Yo, PJ, I got a job for you." Get this guy <laughs> up and throw Mad Thug. <laughs> and next thing you know, half our team is suspended the rest of the season. Dude, I, serious. I remember how they broke that up too, man. They they suspended Sprewell and LJ. One game, and then it was Houston and Ewing. The other game, so what it was, it was, it was, it was Ewing, Starks, Larry Johnson, and Houston left the bench. They weren't even part of the fight, but because they left the bench, and there was this weird rule the NBA had that to quote unquote prevent brawls from happening, they 
suspended them. But the most annoing part was they suspended Ewing, Sarks, and Ward for Game 6, and they suspended Johnson and Houston for Game 7. So what we don't have our full roster for either game, so we what? lose the season series at 7. Yo, I mean, did come the on. NBA make that decision? Was I, didn't even, I don't even remember. Was that like a decision they made that this is how you have to split it up? I don't know. I'm, as far as I know, that's a once-in-NBA history event. Like, I know there are other times where there's famously a, a San Antonio, a Phoenix series where people leaving the bench cost the Suns against I mean, the Spurs. But I don't remember ever them deciding to split suspensions over multiple games. So basically, they, they ruin our chance of winning both games and we lose to these guys. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, that, that incident is the reason now, every after whenever there's a fight, you he- quickly hear the announcers say, and the coaches are keeping the players at the bench. That like incident yep. is the reason for that. Yeah, Yo, you remember that cartoon of your your man Van Gundy <laughs> around people's legs? Oh, that was, that was actually that, different. Oh, that, that's that's the next year. That's so later. That, You're right. That's not that's '98. So well, let's go to that. It's another my. It's another legendary Miami Knicks one. So this is the year Ewing breaks his wrist. Right. The Knicks get into this brutal series against the Heat again. And then there's that one fight in which Jeff Van Gundy famously clings onto Alonzo Mourning's leg. And we beat them anyway, though. You know, we actually beat these guys. It felt great. Of course, then we meet the Pacers and Reggie Miller, you know, my bane, decides to once again break my heart and and the Pacers beat us. Now it's 99. And I know you guys remember this season pretty fondly because we came into that season. It was a lockout shortened season. The Knicks were an eight seed. But we made a run to the NBA Finals along the way we beat out the hated Miami Heat. And that was, by the way, on a famous Allen Houston shot. That one that runner. bounced. Yeah, that runner, that bouncing one in. Front rim, backboard, and in, man. That was my favorite shot of my life, yo. Allen Houston <laughs> became my favorite Nick like, ever yeah. at that point. Dude, Houston was the man. Houston was the man. And he's still yeah. with the organization. So shout out to Allen, H2O. <laughs> he's still he's still collecting them checks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a new Steve Mills, bro. Don't worry. Based on the strength of that shot, he has a job for life. Yeah, and you know that year we knock out the Pacers too, so it was beautiful. We knocked out the we knocked out the Heat. Oh, we knocked we were, out the Pacers. We were crushing that series too. My God, Sprewell and Houston were like torching Absolutely. the Pacers. And if you remember, this is sort of where the whole Ewing theory came about, where the Knicks were winning without Patrick Ewing, and everyone's like, "Oh, we don't need Patrick Ewing." And of course, in the finals, we. It was kind of a big deal down to Patrick Ewing because, of course, we faced the twin towers of David Robinson and a sensational young player known as Tim Duncan. So yeah. having no... Didn't Camby get hurt in that finals too? I remember him being... I think Camby... My my entire memory of Camby, frankly, was him just being injured. <laughs> so I feel like he was always injured in and out. So. You, know, our, 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 you know who our twin towers were? We had Marcus Camby and... Uh, what's his name? Chris Dudley. Oh so yeah, he, yo, my man was ready to throw down in every heat fight. He would, they would always close up to his face, and he'd be like clenching his lip, ready. <laughs> always. What luck the this we run into the Spurs, who were a top seed like two years before, and then David Robinson gets injured, and then they have an off year and get the first pick, and then David Robinson comes back, and they're again one of the top teams. We'll never have that yeah, luck. We'll, we'll never, we'll never have that luck. Warriors last year, you know what I mean? Like they have all these injuries, they get unbelievable. Yeah, everyone complains about the Knicks with that frozen envelope, but we've we've lost many a lottery since then to, to make up for it. We're the team that always picks uh, picks uh, eighth when Steph Curry goes seventh. Wow, I swear it happens every year, or 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 we just pass them when they come up, like Halliburton, <laughs> <laughs> like Mitchell Halliburton, all these other people. It's not like we haven't had our share of mistakes, you know, like. We can blame the lottery odds, but we also suck at drafting up up top. We do not suck at drafting deep, though. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but our picks I agree. fucking up have to be in like we're almost Spurs level with that shit, man. <laughs> like, we've had- remember Landry Fields, huh? Remember Landry Fields? Yeah, that well, yeah. Yeah, Landry Fields. Remember when Spike used to wear the Landry Fields shirt? Everyone was like, "Oh, <laughs> Landry Fields, the next." I mean, Landry Fields on the Knicks got him like a huge contract. Yeah, he was balling that year, man. Yeah, it's nice that one, for once the, the Raptors gave a contract to a player instead of us giving the Raptors kind of big contract and trading <laughs> for him. We could have thrown Andrea Bargnani. He's another one of our miserable. <laughs> Yo, why did we talk about that one? That was the worst one. We gave up two first-round picks, too. I'm like, my La- God. Last thing with that one, we not only paid for him and gave him a pick for that, but the next year, because we were so scared to trade with the Raptors, we didn't trade them a first-round pick for Kyle Lowry. Who would have been a good acquisition? 
So right. they not only unloaded their trash on us, but they mind fucked us into oblivion where we couldn't even trade with them for a good trade. <laughs> <laughs> dude, we were afraid of uh, Masai Ujiri, right? That guy was just owning yeah, us Ujiri, dude. every trade. So I got, a, I got a question for you guys then. Why after all these, people ask me this all the time when they see I'm wearing a Knicks gear. You know, I, I did a little bit of a, a, a year or two ago, I, I, I quit my job. I did a little traveling. I would have my Knicks hat. Everywhere I went, when people see my hat, they're like, yo, why are you a Knicks fan? They suck. Like literally every random country, people know that. And they just, they associate the Knicks brand with this terrible team, right? So why is it, after all these years, we still stick with the team? Why don't we just hop on this bandwagon of the Knicks? Why is it that we, we stick with it? The reality is, it's because when they are good, and when we do start winning, it's going to be so good to feel that and go back to everyone. We're going to travel back to every country, find those people. And be like, what you say? You remember this hat you saw me three years ago? Now what? That's why, because I oh, it's gonna feel so good. You know, we've 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 been through it for so long. It's it's got to turn around at some point. Yeah, I mean, you know, you grew up with the team. You're you're just, you know, we had talked about it earlier. The the garden when it's rocking, there's no place like it. There's no allure like it. You can be a fan of another team. You're not gonna get the New York Mecca experience. And you know, for us, for us New Yorkers, there's no other team. It just is what it is. This is what we were born into. This is what we're gonna. We're going to love for the rest of our lives, whether they make us happy or not. <laughs> I mean, it's just if you've ever been to Madison Square Garden and you've seen that arena rock out for these middling teams, they just what this city wants more than anything else, just competitive basketball team. They want to see it. They want it so badly. And if we ever get that, the NBA as a whole will be so much better for it. It's not just that we're a huge market. It's a passionate market with multiple generations of fans. And it's almost as if, kind of like with Cleveland Brown fans over the years where it's become this shared misery. We have this shared misery now between us. And I think you can't almost let that go. It's part of our identity as sports fans, right? And as you said, Drew, if it ever, if we ever just win a little bit, oh my God, will we stick it? We'll be, we're already one of the most annoying fan bases just from how we go over the top with all the smallest things that happen. But can you imagine if we're actually good, like legitimately good, like finals level good? I see, oh I know if God. we get good... Brooklyn's going to lose their four fans and it's going to go down to two. So <laughs> gonna, when, when we are good, we're going to bring the rest of the hosts of the podcast on and we're just going to sit there staring at them and not say, I'm just going to have just my smirking. name on. Just smirking. We'll, we'll just have our fitted on just smirking. Like, go ahead. <laughs> you guys got something to say? <laughs> Yo, until <Just> then, though. <laughs> <laughs> until then, don't invite them because otherwise it won't be a their conversation. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll close on this then. Tell me this. If you had to make a prediction today, based on what you've seen so far and how you sort of project the season going the rest of the way, where did the Knicks end up at the end of the season? I don't mean just like what seed they're, but where did, how far do they go? Do they, do they make out, do they make it to a play-in game? Do they go past that? Do they avoid the play-in game? Do they go to round two? <laughs> or do they go to the NBA finals? <laughs> I hope you don't say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll take a quick shot at it. I mean, from where, from where the East is looking right now, I mean... If we can continue this pace up, if we, I, I hope we don't make any crazy trades. I like the team, uh, the way it, the way they're playing right now. I think adding anybody who's just a rental, just to make a quick push, is not going to, you know, be beneficial. I think we should let the young guys play it out a little bit and get some experience. But, I mean, you think about it, the seeding is like we're like four games away from being the third seed or something like that. So, yeah, bro, I mean, we're, we're a game behind the Pacers for the number four seed. Yeah. Like something like crazy like that. I mean, like, here's the thing. If we end up in the bottom half, I think we we either we might win the play in game. We probably lose out in the definitely lose out pretty hard in the in the in the first round if we're like seated six through eight. But if we somehow make it to the fifth seed, I think we're competitive in the first round, whoever that fourth seed is. I think we push it to like six games at least. I think we could steal two games. I don't I don't think we'll make it out of the first round. Yeah, I, I, I think I think we're capped. Our ceiling is that a uh, first round exit. You know, no matter what seed we kind of pick up and we get to. Realistically, though, I don't think we're gonna get beyond the playoff play in game. I can see us being a nine or ten when it's all said and done, um, and having to play a team like, you know, for for example, right now the Heat and the Hawks are both outside looking in, and I think both teams at least can compete with us. The Heat maybe are better than us, not maybe, but definitely better than us. And then I think teams like the Hornets, the Hawks, the Knicks, 
we're all in that same tier. And, you know, whether whether we wind up winning this playing game or not, we're not going to really be able to play play with the Bucks, the Nets, and the Sixers. My prediction, we make it to the play-in game and we lose to, like, the Hornets. Yeah, I think for me, I'm going more on hope than anything else. I just want us to host some level, some sort of a game. So whether that's becoming a seventh or eighth seed and then hosting the play-in game, or if it's, you know, getting past, getting to a sixth seed, at least having some home games, even if we're going to be, you know, let's say only have three out of the seven games. I just want us to do that. I think we will do that. I think I, I, I just, I'm just imagining a situation where I know, Raul, you're going to Thursday's game. They're allowing 2,000 fans. And maybe by the summertime, we have considerable more than that allowed at, at games in the garden. And just to have the city appreciate what they've seen basketball-wise from this team, that's what I want to happen. So because I want that to happen, it's going to be based on my prediction. I think we are going to at least get out of the play-in game and be in round one somehow. Uh, it's wishful thinking, but... And, and again, I, I expect us to lose whoever we face in round one. But I think just having like some games in the garden, playoff games, actual playoff games there again, I just can't believe how good that would feel. For sure. And just so everybody knows how crazy we are, we did an hour and 10 minute podcast on a under 500 team. And we could talk about a lot more if we wanted to. <laughs> we could keep this going on for another two hours. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, guys. So thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to come on on a on a on a week night. <laughs> we all got work, but we take the time to talk about the Knicks. So I really appreciate it, and Raul. I hope you have fun at your at your Knicks game. Please, we'll we'll have to bring you back to see what it's like. I think we're the only people I knew who's actually going to go to one of these games live in a post COVID world. So that's pretty exciting. And for anybody out there wondering, Rahul will be the the nerdy guy with glasses and the fitted, looking a little out of place, not really. A- athletic or a baller but you know likes the knicks just just go say what up to him go say hello yeah check me out i'm gonna be on tv holla at your boy (laughs) (laughs) thanks drew and rahul for everyone who listened to this episode thank you so much we really appreciate it be sure to like rate or subscribe on whatever platform you listen to and be sure to check in next time peace out guys